0: On the 25th of June 1967, the world's first live satellite TV production was uh, broadcast around the globe. Um, Some of us will be old enough to remember that. It was called Our World and it included contributions from 19 countries and it reached uh, an estimated audience of about 400 million people which then was, was massive. Uh, Britain's contribution was provided by the Beatles, who wrote a song especially for the event. Uh, what did they sing? Well, what message did they feel the whole world needed to hear? It was, all you need is love. Now, love is a very prominent theme in one genre. Uh, on five occasions, John exhorts us to love one another, uh, and he throws in another, uh, another one in two, John, for good measure. However, for all that John champions love, and even prioritises love, unlike the Beatles, he doesn't say, all you need is love. He doesn't say, love is all you need. As we've been looking at one, John, in this weeks, we'll all be aware now of the, 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 the cyclical structure of the letter. And in, in the first cycle, John was viewing the Christian life in terms of fellowship with God. And he outlined uh, a series of inevitable outcomes of having fellowship with God. And each of those outcomes uh, provides the basis for uh, a test Of the genuineness of a claim a person might make to be in fellowship with God, to have fellowship with God. And you remember there was the moral test, the test of righteousness. And there was the, if you like, the social test, which was the test of love. And there was the theological test, the belief that the Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God made man. So, if we're in fellowship with God, we not only should be showing love, not only characterised by love, but that must also be accompanied by righteousness and the conviction that Jesus is God-man. Now, in the second cycle uh, in the letter, John is then viewing the Christian life in terms of being children of God. And again, he outlines a series of outcomes that result from being children of God. And each of those provides the basis for a test of the genuineness of any claim that someone might make to be a child of God. And surprise, surprise, they're the same three tests again. Now, last time Richard began to look at the at that second cycle, but by considering uh, chapter two twenty-eight, two to three chapter uh, three verse ten, and in that John was really revisiting the righteousness test. He was saying that children of God don't make a practice of sinning. So, whether or not someone makes a practice of sinning, it is a test of whether or not. They are a child of God. Um, it was very much summed up in verses nine and ten. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. But then verse ten closes uh, by saying, "Nor." is the one who does not love his brother. And there, he was really pointing forward to the next section. Having revisited the righteousness test, he's now going on to revisit the love test. Uh, He mentioned it previously back in chapter 2. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now in the second cycle, as I say, he's revisiting the, the, that, that love test and he's looking at it in a bit more uh, detail. So that's what we see in our passage for today, verses 11 to 18 of chapter 3. You see, it begins with the word for, and that indicates that he's going on to show why the one who does not love his brother is not a god. And he says it is because of the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now that word message is a bit weak. Um, a message could be something like your supper's in the oven or, or we'll meet at the church building at 2pm on Wednesday afternoon. But the Greek word here really means something more like an, an announcement. It's an important matter that has been declared. An important matter that has been spoken out, that they'd heard something important that had been declared, and John said it was from the beginning. From the beginning of what? Well, some commentators uh, take that to mean from the beginning of each individual believer's Christian experience, but uh, I-, I don't think that's the right way to understand it. The word you in the text is not singular, it's it's plural, it's the collective you, uh, all the children of God that he'd been mentioning, they, they heard a message that had been an announcement that had been made at the beginning of something. Beginning of what? Well, we could work that out, what the message was. The message was that we should love one another. And clearly that's referring to the announcement that Jesus made back in John 13, 34 he said, "A new commandments I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another now when did Jesus say that? it was immediately after the Last Supper when he'd spoken of his death in terms of his body been given and in terms of there being a new covenant in his blood, uh, he went on to seek of himself then being glorified and no longer being, being with them and his disciples being unable to follow him. He gave this commandment for them as they remained. It was at the beginning of the new covenants and the message he gave was his commandments for his new covenant people. I must be clear that the love that Jesus set before his people from the beginning uh, is very different from the 60s hippie type love extolled by the Beatles. We'll see that it's, it's Christ like, self giving, self sacrificing love that puts others first at your own expense. It's denoted in the Bible by the Greek word agape. Uh, and in typical John fashion, he proceeds in a fairly circuitous manner, uh, with plenty of tangents thrown in, to say more about this love for one another. I'm going to try not to spend too much time on any of those tangents, so that I can concentrate on, on four things about this love. Now, the headings are prepared to be impressed. The headings are not only alliterated. I have come up with an alternative alliteration. You see, I had two sets of headings, one beginning with I and one beginning with E. And I couldn't decide which was best. So I'm going to give you them both and you can take your pick. So the first point to note is that this love is imperative or essential. John and Jesus both said we should love one another. For for a child of God, there's a a necessity about this agape love. There's a necessity for it to be in us, an expressed bias. A couple of things to note here is that the word love, clearly here, it's, it's it's a verb. It's something we're to do. Now, the Greek word for the regular verb to love is agapeo. But the word that's used here is agapomen, and that's in the present continuous tense. So he's talking about a continuing attitude and practice of this agape love. That's what's an essential characteristic of the child of God, of the Christian life. Now, Just as A child of God doesn't make a habit of uh, of sinning, as we saw last time, so the child of God does make a habit of loving. It's not as though there's some sort of tap that that we have the option of turning on or off. We can't take a break from it, it's to flow from us continuously. And note that we should love one another. Now we saw that you was plural and we see more pluralities. He says we should love one another. And and the fact is that you can't love one another on your own. You can only do that in the context of of mutual togetherness. That very much ties in with what we were seeing not so long ago with, with the children. If you remember we were thinking about the church being a body and it being a building made up from living stones. To love one another, well, there must be a one another. There must be one, and there must be another. But also, the loving one another to work, it must be a reciprocal thing. It means that as well as loving others, we must be ready to be loved. I often think that, that uh, We we might not be brilliant at loving others, but we're probably better at that than we are at being loved by others. Perhaps it's a, a, a British thing, but isn't it often the case that if someone lovingly offers to help us, our default position is to politely decline. Thank you, but no, it's okay. Perhaps it's pride, Perhaps it's a a natural sense of self-sufficiency. But whatever it is, what we're actually doing is denying our brother (coughs) or or sister the (coughs) opportunity to love us as they should. Why is it the case that we should love one another in this way? From whence does the imperative come? How does it arise? I don't think it's simply that Jesus and John Said so, well, there are good reasons. But remember that in, the, in this, uh, this cycle of the letter, John was viewing the Christian life in terms of uh, being a child of God and, and loving one another with this continuing childlike love, is a consequence of being a child of God. Um, it becomes clearer as he goes on to give uh, the negative example, a negative example of, of Cain, there in verse 12. He said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, having said that we should love one another, he then went on to say that we should not be like Cain. Now when you think of, of Cain, I guess our minds immediately turn to the fact that he murdered his brother. That, that's what he's famous for, isn't it? Or infamous <coughs> that, That's what you tend to immediately uh, think of. And, and perhaps think to yourself, well, we don't need to be told not to do that. You know, we can't imagine that we're at all likely to kill our, our brother or, or, or sister. But you, you notice that John didn't say that we should not do what Cain did. He actually said we should not be like Cain. The point is, not that we shouldn't murder, though well of course we shouldn't, but that we shouldn't share with Cain in the character that motivated him to murder his brother. He goes on in verse 12 to say, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous." Because his deeds were evil he wasn't accepted whereas his brother Abel was. And no doubt that gave rise to Cain being jealous, being envious, bitter, hateful, and that led to the act of murder. The real point here is why Cain's deeds were evil in the first place. And John wants us to understand that it was because Cain was of the evil one that that is uh, the, the devil was, was his spiritual father. He was in the devil's family. It was really a case of, of like father, like son. There was a, an inevitability about his deeds being evil and him hating his brother. He was being true to his spiritual nature. And in contrast with that, those who are children of God, uh, for, for them, love for brothers is an imperative. It's essential. it stems from the new nature they have as God's children, as members of God's spiritual family, that they have that family likeness. Now this um, contrast between children of God and children of the evil one leads John on a slight tangent, but it's nonetheless important. Verse 13 there, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And he's saying that we who are brothers um, because we're children of God shouldn't be like Cain, but we do need to be aware of the fact that the world will be like Cain. What we've seen in, in previous weeks that the world is that natural order of things that's opposed to God, uh, it's that which entices us, away from God, it's that which entangles us in its godless attitudes and appetites. Well, like Cain, the world is of the evil one. So it will hate those who are children of God just as surely as Cain hated his godly brother. And you notice that John didn't say, don't be surprised if the world hates you. He said, don't be surprised that the world hates you. It's not just the possibility that the world might hate us. It does. Now, that hate will express itself in all sorts of ways, and some are a lot more uh, dumbare than others. But the fact is, the world hates us. Well, after that brief diversion, let's move on to the next point, which is that this love is an indicator or evidence. That stands to reason, really, doesn't it? That if such love for one another... Flows from us being children of God, then the presence of of such love indicates that you are a child of God. It's evidence that you're a child of God. It enables you to to know that to be the case. It seems obvious, but John goes on to spell it out anyway. He's wanting those who are loving one another to be in no doubt that they are children of God. He wants them to know Uh, During uh, the COVID uh, COVID pandemic, we've heard a lot, haven't we, about evidence-based decision-making. Well, John is encouraging evidence-based knowledge, stemming from evidence-based conclusions. In verse 14, he goes on to say, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love the love abides in death. You notice the the flow of thought there. It's, we know, because. What's the because? What's the evidence? It's that we love the brothers. The word translated love there, it's agapomen again. So it's that ongoing agape love that indicates something. You can draw a conclusion from it. What does it show? You might expect him to say, (coughs) we know that we are children of God because we love the brothers. But he actually put it inside in different terms by saying we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now when he was viewing the Christian life in terms of fellowship with God, he described that as walking in the light rather than in darkness. And now... He's viewing the Christian life in terms of being a child of God, and he describes children of God as having passed out of death into life. That immediately tells us that every child of God was once dead to God. Ever since the fall, being dead to God has been the natural state for every human being. All, like Cain, are naturally of the evil one and that's not a comfortable idea but that's not a popular idea and so many people prefer to think that well people are basically good or at least people are born neutral and over time that's their environment and their life experiences Um, have an effect on whether they will go on to choose or, or reject God. But you see, that simply isn't true. The Bible is very clear that people are naturally dead in sin. Children of God are those who were once dead in sin, just like everyone else. But they have since passed out of death into life. And you notice that's quite passive language, isn't it? You know, it's not something that they have done for themselves. It's not something that they've brought about for themselves. No, it's something that's been done to them, or for them, or, or in them. They, they've been brought to life. It takes nothing less than a, a spiritual resurrection to make a person into a child of God. Um, elsewhere, the Bible refers to it as a, a new birth. And it's God's work. It's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ongoing agape love for the brothers is the evidence of that great change having taken place. Now, throughout this series, we've seen, haven't we, that one of John's purposes in the letter was to strengthen believers whose faith had been shaken by those who said they needed something more In terms of a a special higher knowledge. And John was saying, no you don't. If you love the brothers, that's evidence that you have passed out of death into life. Be encouraged. Take heart. Be confident. Be content. But then the other main purpose that John had in writing the letter was to expose the false claims of those who said they were children of God but in reality weren't. And he wasn't challenging them out of spite or because he was spoiling for a bit of a scrap or anything like that. If if there's anything worse than not being a child of God it's thinking you're a child of God and being mistaken. So again John goes on to follow up his positive statement by expressing it Negatively by saying, whoever does not love abides in death. You see, since love is evidence of having passed out of death into life, well, not loving is evidence of not having passed out of death into life. It's evidence of remaining uh, spiritually dead. And so not being a child of God. And he explains that further in verse 15 where he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now it would be very easy to misunderstand that statement. Let's be very clear that John certainly is not saying that anyone who has committed murder cannot become a child of God. No one is beyond the reach of God's Saving grace. You see, in saying everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, he is picking up on the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 uh, 21 22. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the health of fire. You see, Jesus wasn't singling out the overt act of murder, but pointing out that inner attitude that could potentially lead to murder. And pointing out that, that is every bit as bad. To hate your brother is to be like Cain, who was the evil one. And it follows that, that no one who is a murderer in that sense, has eternal life abiding in him. That they remain in death until God intervenes by bringing them out of death into life uh, and making them a child of God. And that will then be evidence uh, by loving the brothers with this continuing agape love. Next thing to notice is that this love has been illustrated or exemplified continuing in verse 16 we read by this we know love uh, the NIV has that by this we know what love is and that immediately reminded me of that old, old song by Foreigner that was entitled uh, I want to know what love is um, they, they should have looked at 1 John 3.16 shouldn't they Uh, But in fact, neither translation is quite right here because the Greek text contains uh, uh, contains a definite article. The translation should be, by this we know the love. And that's referring to this ongoing agape love that John has been talking about. And that word know we need to think about as well. In the previous verse we had the word know and there it's being used in the sense of uh, having knowledge, being aware of facts. But in this verse, it's a different Greek word. And it's uh, it has a, a, a different sense. It has the sense of perceiving or understanding. So John's really saying, by this we grasp or, or see this ongoing agave love that I've been talking about. He's saying we have an example that shows it or demonstrates it so that we can comprehend it. And what's the example? Well, he says that he laid down his life for us. And strangely enough, John doesn't actually say who he is. But clearly, it's Jesus, isn't it? Who else could be said to have laid down his life for us? Jesus freely, willingly, Laying down his life by dying on the cross for undeserving sinners is the supreme example of agape love. Invariably, uh, when the New Testament speaks of God's love, it it links it to the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20 and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Romans five eight. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Later in one John chapter four verse ten. In this is love, saying, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Well, Jesus has shown us takes the form of sacrifice John started this section by saying we should love one another and now he's saying that in view of Jesus example we ought to lay down our lives for the lovers that's what this love is it means we should sacrifice ourselves for one another now that sounds very very dramatic doesn't it And perhaps we find ourselves thinking, well, we're not likely to have to actually lose our lives uh, for one another. But we see the sort of thing that John has in mind as he goes on uh, to, to give an example of what failing to do so looks like. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now that translation has been sanitised a bit for the benefits of uh, modern Western sensibilities and understanding that the heart isn't actually mentioned uh, in that text at all. Uh, a literal translation would be shut up his bowels against him or, or even shut up his intestines against him. And to our modern Western ears, that all sounds a bit brisly, doesn't it? And it doesn't really convey, convey any any meaning that we can make make sense of. So, the English um, that that we have closes his heart, or perhaps his heartless, conveys the intended meaning uh, well. As an aside, aside, it perhaps shows that a literal word-for-word translation of the Bible isn't always a good thing. It isn't always helpful. What matters is that we understand the message that is being conveyed. John's point is that if God's love abides in us, uh, if we see a brother or sister in any need, agape love will move us with compassion uh, and address the need at our own expense. Sacrificial Christ-like love will mean that we don't cling on to what we have, but freely give it up for the good of our brother. If we're following Christ's example of this ongoing love, we will sacrifice our self interest for the sake of our brothers, whether it be in terms of time, or money, or possessions. Paul made the point very clearly in Philippians 2 4 8, where he said, Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. example, Jesus is for us. That's the love that we should be demonstrating. Uh, that's the way in which we should be loving one another. Well, finally, this love is to be implemented or exercised. In verse 18, he says, "'Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth.'" So he refers to them as little children, picking up on the fact that he's addressing children of God, who should therefore love one another sacrificially. The word for love, once again, is agapomen. So it's still talking about that continual disposition to love. And now uh, he emphasises that such agape love must be implemented or, or exercised by actually doing something. It's not a a thought. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's doing something. It involves action. He, He puts it negatively by saying, let us not love in word or talk. Now that doesn't mean that exercising this love Never involves talking. Sometimes when a, a brother or sister is in need, having someone talk with them is exactly what, what they need. You know, that they, they need someone to give advice, give encouragement, express some sympathy, pray with them. That's exactly what they need. Taking time to meet that need. Uh, is exercising sacrificial love. It's putting yourself out. It's giving up time for the good of your brother or sister. John's point is that we're not to think that merely talking about being loving is of any use at all. Uttering empty platitudes uh, isn't ex- exercising sacrificial love. Uh, it's the point that James made in, in chapter 2, verse 15 of his letter. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So speaking empty words, but not actually doing anything to meet the need. That, that's what John means when he says, let us not love in word or talk. The people say, Talk is cheap, don't they? And often it can be. You know, where's the sacrifice in uttering empty platitudes? So John goes on to say positively that we're rather to love indeed and in truth. we to love in deed, and that tells us that love must do something. Going back to James' example, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking food, Love is not merely saying go in peace and be warned. It's giving them the things they need, it's providing for them. So love must be indeed. But you notice that John also has uh, added truth. Good deeds, even ones that are sacrificial because they cost you something, are not necessarily an expression of Agape love. That the, uh, the, those who are children of God are to exercise. You see, this love must be genuine. It's not to be for the sake of keeping up appearances, uh, making yourself look good. It's not to be for the sake of your own satisfaction and making yourself feel good. Such love involves sacrificial deeds that are motivated by a genuine Christ like love. And concern uh, and be for the good of our brothers and sisters. Back in the summer of love, the Beatles said, "All you need is love," and it sounded so free and easy, didn't it? But the love of the child that the children are to show is costly. It, it's hard. It's sacrificial love in this life we will fail and fall short of that in many ways. But if our continuing attitude and disposition is to love one another in that way, then we can take heart that we are children of God. Well, may we each look at ourselves and be able to see that yes, we fail, yes, we fall short, but that's our outlook, that's our desire, that, that's the motivation that flows from within us because we have a new nature, we have new hearts uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.